What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome, everybody, to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where once upon a time, back in 2018, fresh off of acquiring LeBron James, we were all ready to witness the litness, copyright LFR Productions 2018. (laughs) But after a cursed gap year of injuries galore and continued young core growing pains, sprinkled in with some air guitar madness and Beasley wardrobe malfunctions, And needless to say, any plans of litness were effectively stalled. Well, welcome to the end of 2020. We now have Anthony Davis. LeBron James is still the best basketball player in the world at 35. And your Los Angeles Lakers are officially the best basketball team in the world, having just won championship number 17. So given all of that, I can now confidently say, we are all litnesses. We are all litness. We are all litnesses. Both apply. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez. I am joined by my co-hosts, Alan Riley and Tommy Alexander. Alan, how potent still is that championship smell on your body these days? Well, I took my own champagne shower all by myself, and I haven't washed any of my laundry, so I can still get a little bit of that stench right here. So yeah, it's fresh. But not really fresh. It's actually really stanky, but I love it. <laughs> hey, mine is as potent as some really good Korean barbecue. You know, Korean barbecue, you need like three showers to get the smell of cooking meat <laughs> off your skin. But yeah, the only showers I'm taking these days are the champagne variety. Tommy, how about you? How much more enjoyable is Rubik's Cubing the future for this team when you know that you just ransacked through the league and everyone's looking to you now to adjust? Not specifically you, but the Lakers, obviously. It's nice being in this position. It kind of feels like 2008 or 2009, whatever that was, when we beat Orlando that first time. And the entire, you feel like now you're at the forefront of the league and everyone's playing catch up to you. And especially with this quick start into next season, I think that's, it's going to amplify everything. Um, it's it's funny. And, and, you know, every sports league is like this, but it, every league is a copycat league. 
everyone is going to try to put together a very poor version of what we did this year, I think. And they're not going to like understand, I think, the nuances of what about LeBron and AD and Dwight and JaVale and the way that we use those guys, like why that worked for us. Um, and so, I, you know, it feels nice because you feel vindicated. Um, we defended these guys last season, last summer, I, I should say, when we were making all these signings. We kind of saw and thought about how all these pieces might fit. And we pursue like you know push through all that despite everybody in the world saying this is a six seed team that has no chance of beating the clippers in the playoffs even when we were like the number one seed going into the lockdown right so uh it's it's vindicating it feels nice and um it's certainly there's some level of although everything's going to be weird again next season there's some degree of uh uncertainty that it feels like is not there anymore that was there for the last four or five years when we were trying to re or six years when we were trying to rebuild with those high draft picks. Yeah, for sure. And the uh, championship gushing and victory lapping is just beginning. And we're here today to do a whole lot more of that. So consider this podcast episode, witness the litness fulfilled. And we couldn't think of any better way to bring things full circle and tie this season up in a big old rainbow than by having the one and only the Lakers film room, Mr. LFR himself, Pete Zayas, Pete. Welcome back to the show. It is a pleasure, Jonathan. The quality of your writing on the intros is always stellar. (laughs) So just want to give a quick round of applause for that. Call me the Filipino Lee Jenkins. No, I'm just kidding. There you go. Yeah, it's beautifully. It's beautiful. It's a uh, you know. Yes. Yeah. You always put a lot of time and, and thought, and it's very very eloquent. It feels like the old days of like when journalists actually tried, and it oh, was ooh. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, Alan, great to see you as well. I hope that you rub some of that Lakers uh, aroma onto your Dodger hat. And uh, Tommy, you're right on, man, with like where we're going with this season, like this, this celebration of this past season also comes with a hope for the future, too. So it's one of those just great harmonic convergences of a lot of cool things. And just this Lakers season was just magical. And I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, Pete, no long drawn out oratory masterpiece of an introduction for you this time. You are a Laker and a champion, and that's all the introduction you need. So congrats to everything that's happened to you this past year. And also additional congrats on firming your own big three in the podcast world, signing on your third co-host of the LFR pod in Mike Trudell. No doubt a move to match up with the Lakers legacy pod. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Ironically... I could totally take Mike one on one. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> oh yeah, we got. I wonder who would win in a. You guys are younger than we are. Trudell can bring it a little bit. I'm I'm out of shape and oh, actual basketball good. wise. Yeah. yeah, like actual basketball. I'm pretty sure you guys take us, but we, you know, we kind of we would try to win the physical battle. I think with you guys, yeah, yeah <laughs> throwing some elbows, doing some old man type stuff, you know. To yeah. For sure. You definitely win the podcast battle. We are the Chinatown swap meet bootleg version of you guys. I'm Darius because I'm Filipino. Tommy's Trudell because they're both white. And Alan's, Alan's just you because he can do a pretty good impression of you very early on that's true. when you were first starting out. So that's where all honor. parallels and lines up. So, you know, Pete, last intro related thing I'll, I'll say is... Um, Have you personally been able to take a step back yet and just soak it all in? You know, back in 2016, when you were making your first podcast appearance ever on this Lakers Legacy podcast, a fact that I will shamelessly continue to shout from the rooftops, especially now, 
But back then, when you were still a little nervous about unveiling your golden throat to the world, your voice a little more tremory than it is now, and you know, yeah. you're a little more liable to come in hot towards the mic anytime you're uh-huh. about to spit your takes. Uh-huh. A little more confidence, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I had told you back then, when we were on air, that four years from now, you'd have your own podcast, which I predicted you'd have even back then, in that first episode, but that you'd be doing said podcast with four and blue and golds Darius, and now... Lakers sideline reporter Mike Trudell as well. And then on top of that, that the Lakers' first championship win in a decade would coincide with your first year as an official Lakers employee. What would you have thought? I am, I would have told you, and this is how I currently feel, I I am fairly certain I'm living in a simulation. And (laughs) that I'm grateful whatever I did, they said a pretty sweet simulation for me all in all. Um, But... Like, remember I had my hospitalization, my, like, near-death experience. Fairly certain I may have died at that point. And then, like, (laughs) the gods, uh, the basketball gods hopefully advocated for me and said, we're going to let him live out, like, the rest of his life as though he lived and got every, like, basketball thing that he wanted, right? And Or or just about, right? So that's how I feel about how this has gone, man. This has been a wild freaking ride, and I'm I'm really excited. I I feel a lot of... uh, just joy and excitement about where it's going and, and where what we can do with this. I think it's part of a, a of a movement in a broader sense to put more substance into sports coverage, and that's something that really in in all like all of these pods and and, and blogs and videos it, like we can produce them ourselves as fans, right? Like so, the need for outside media like they're gonna have to bring it they're gonna have to be good at their jobs in order to maintain their position because you guys myself we can all reach anybody that we want to and then it's up to the people to decide like this is what i like this is what i want and now we're choosing you know and there's dangers to that too of course we can Anyway, I can go in a hundred directions with that, but yeah, man, like just this whole thing—it it feels wild, and it feels like it's a—I uh, don't know where it's going or where it's ending, but I'm excited about it. Yeah, well, thank you for being at the forefront of that movement to elevate basketball talk and especially Lakers talk as well. And yeah, congrats to you and everything that's happened this past year. And we're we're glad to just be along for the ride with you. Tonight's episode is no, man, gonna... you're part of it. You're not along for the ride. You're oh, part of you. it, man. Appreciate like that. the the effort, the thought, and the the quality of like the intros, man. Like I I I don't know if you took that as joking, but like they're always really good. They're always really like you think about it, you care about it, you put thought and effort, and you've got talents. You're of that world right of you've been in writers rooms and all of that and I've always really appreciated that about the work that you do right and and so that's why whenever you ask me to come on here it's not just because this was my first place like you guys have a really good show and it's because you guys put thought and effort into it sorry continue no no we appreciate that I know you're in the A block and you've got it all set up, which is exactly. And I'm pulling it off. What you want to? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, but right in line, right in line with preparing and and caring a lot about it. No, I mean, I think Raj on Written Rules like DM me one time and he was like, "I've been listening to you guys since D'Angelo Russell days. You guys helped me get through that." And I was like, "Hey, that's all the confirmation I need that we help Uh people get through the D'Angelo Russell, Byron Scott days, and and not specifically D'Angelo Russell because we defended his ass through and through, but more so the Byron Scott days. But anyways, uh, as I mentioned, tonight's episode is simply going to be a continued stream of consciousness look back and reflection on this bizarre yet spectacular and definitely one-of-a-kind championship Lakers season that was. And we're glad to have Pete on here with us to shoot the talk your shittiest of shits because we are world champions, baby. 
Woo! But before we get into everything, though, just wanted to remind everyone that we are the Lakers Legacy Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Lakers Legacy Pod. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube by searching Lakers Legacy. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we would absolutely love and appreciate a five-star iTunes ratings and review. So yeah, let's talk about the season. We're not going to talk about the season potentially starting at 12:22. We're not going to talk about Polinka trying to clear Ding's dead cap hold off our books, though these may come up in our answers as we go along the way. Uh, but let's start off macro, talk about the season as a whole, and then eventually work our way into touching specific aspects of this team and the players. So, and Alan and Tommy, feel free to interject at any point if you have any specific questions you want to ask Pete. Otherwise, we'll just go off of my outline. Pete, in hindsight, the Lakers really bulldozed through the league and all of basketball Twitter's tired narratives these playoffs. And near mm-hmm. the end of it, you mentioned that this was the most relaxed you felt watching a Lakers championship run. Yeah. Given how long we've been out of the high-stakes basketball game, though, and given nearly a decade's worth of like pent-up nerves, anxiety, PTSD that we were all sort of riding, and seeing as to how personally for me I couldn't even handle each loss the Lakers took in the three series before the finals, and it seemed like the world was falling after the start of rounds one and two, are you almost glad the basketball gods and the Lakers gifted us with such a dominant run to help get our feet wet once again before we have to go through these 2001 Game 7s and 2010 Game 7 gauntlets? Yeah, no, that's exactly it, man, is I, I know that since it had been so long and the Lakers had gotten to the point where, you know, even a, a, an ardent fan like myself and like you guys, right, going through those the D'Angelo Russell era and like being like, yeah, these guys are young and they're going to have flaws, right, but understanding kind of where we were and being cool with that, by the time after last season, right, we had kind of lost, they had lost a lot of our benefit of the doubt. Um, in in how things had gone, and they had to actually go out and prove it that they were this team that we had hoped that they were, but they had to go out, actually go out and prove it. That said, this dominance was always in the tape. After like after that weekend in March, I went on a like drunken all caps tweeting spree that weekend because like I was like, yo, we are that team. Like everything I had hoped, we're that. And then on top of that, when we get to the playoffs. Playoff Rondo shows up. Somebody you've always advocated for, at least mm-hmm. to 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 some degree, right? Um, and and that's that ball handler that I felt like we always needed to really add to the team. It's like, oh, he is on the team. Rondo can do it. I didn't think he could mm-hmm. do it anymore, but he totally can do it. He just can't do it for eighty two games. And so that guy that I that skill set that I felt was absent in the team showing up with Playoff Rondo, and he it was what game two or three when he had, it was game. Two right in mm-hmm. against Houston, yeah. where he came back and he like hits the ground running. It's like what the fuck, like this <laughs> yeah. guy. Like it, it wasn't just that he could do it; it's that he could do it after six months of not playing. Yeah. And like I watched this dude over, and he it wasn't just that game. And I'm like, oh, this motherfucker, like he's got, <laughs> like he, like he's really got it, right? They were right all along. He was right all along. He got every reason to give two middle fingers to people like me, right? But he had it, and so that one skill set, that second ball handler off of LeBron, that I always felt was kind of lacking on the team, we had it all along. And so when you start seeing it on tape, you're like, oh shit. And so I'm not supposed to talk too big on Twitter, right? Like we're not supposed to give bulletin board material as a, as a Lakers employee to other teams, right? Oh, in the group chat, I was flagrant. <laughs> at the beginning of these playoffs, in the, at the beginning of these playoffs, man, I was like, we are about to fuck everybody up. Like, I promise <laughs> you. Because that is what the tape, that's what the tape was showing. And then we're, 
like we're this really arrogant team where like oh we feel like we're way better than you and then we stop trying and then like we lose games yeah. but even while everybody was on pins and needles I'm like yo like enjoy this team right now because we're a couple tiers better than everybody else like that's not what I expected either but what mm-hmm. the tape shows is that we're a couple tiers better than everyone and this is like an all time great team because that's what the actual yeah. basketball was showing us so that was I'm really glad Lakers fans got that type of team because that's as relaxing as it gets, man. Like 2001 is the only yeah. one that compares. Yeah. No, totally. Exactly. And, you know, Tommy, I want you to speak to Pete. You just mentioned all of the on-court basketball stuff, but off the court, it was like the Kobe and Shaq years combined all into one year in terms of all of the drama. So, Tommy, I'm going to ask you to talk about what this team went through because they went through a lot. And I know many people from the outside will scoff at that. But if you were on the ground in Los Angeles and knowing what it means to be an Angelian, you know this wasn't your typical there's always drama in Lakers land type season. Even just thinking about, you know, Kobe's passing, I feel like you could write an entire book on the Lakers plane ride back to Philly from everybody's individual perspective of how everybody internally handled that news mid-flight, you know? So, I mean, needless to say, let's not underrate how much this team went through emotionally this season, right down to the bubble almost falling apart entirely due to the social injustice surrounding George Floyd. And that doesn't even touch upon the typical disingenuous basketball takes that surrounded this entire team from day one, which Pete spoke to for a contending championship team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis to have that much shit talk and no benefit of the doubt was kind of insane to me. I I remember guys like Ben Golliver kept scoffing that the Lakers, Lakers only had like LeBron James, Alex Caruso, Kyle Kuzma, and Anthony Davis on their roster. They know they need to have 13 guys on the roster, right? So absolutely asinine remarks like that where I'm like, yeah, they, they know that. I don't know why we keep... <laughs> Rob, Rob doesn't understand the calf, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why we keep harping on and about the fact that the Lakers don't have a team. Um, but this Lakers team, as Pete mentioned, shut all of them up and gave us all louder voices in turn mm, to pettily so snap good. back. So, Tommy, just talk about how what everything this team went through off the court and how I feel like this Lakers team was a team made for the glass half full, most homery of homers Lakers fans. So pretty much this podcast, a broken clock is right twice a day. And this year's Lakers made this broken clock feel like we were right more than that. So I think this team had so many reasons. I don't want to use the word excuses, but there are so many things that could have gone wrong this year. And there are so many reasons for them to have not won and that they could have like legitimately fallen back on, taken some comfort, be like, you know what, we'll run it back next year, hopefully a semi-normal year, and we can get everything back on track. And they just pushed through all of it, right? Like AD, the big trade for AD was the first one, where people were acting like we it was the most lopsided win for the Pelicans. We were the team getting a top five player in the NBA, right? And And we had to push through that. Oh, and then you mentioned the comments about how at some point, I think the guys we had on the roster were like LeBron... I don't even, Caruso signed a new deal last summer. So it was like LeBron, Kuzma, and AD. Yeah, yeah, we're like the guys we had as of like draft night or something. So we pushed through all of that. We pushed through people calling LeBron washed and saying he was wasting time with his Space Jam filming last year. And and, and we pushed through like the the signings that people said, you know, weren't going to work. And, and, you know, we don't have shooting. Why do we have so many big men? You know, what are we trying to try to do here? Like, we pushed through the Ty Lue stuff. People forgot about that, right? Oh, the Lakers don't get their first pick of a coach. And who knows what their first... Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I wasn't in the room, so it's it's hard for me to say. But, you know, we pushed through, through that uh, kind of controversy. We get to the season, everybody talking about the Clippers. 
through March, frankly, and even when, you know, Pete, I, I think you're referencing that period in March, or maybe I was misunderstanding, but when we, when we had beat the Celtics, we, you know, late February, we'd beat the Bucks, we beat the Clippers, mm-hmm. and, and we started looking like a legitimate contender. Even through all of that, people were falling back on the, well, the Clippers haven't played their whole team, right? And the, <laughs> like the Doc Rivers special. Um, so, you know, it, it's a... Uh, and, and it, like, of course, ignoring the biggest one of them all, right, which was Kobe, uh, and it, not just not just Kobe passing away, but the horrific, you know, circumstances of that, and yeah. and everything involved with that, and the fact that he was involved, like, involved with this team, obvi- like, very intimately involved with Rob, obviously, just on a personal level, but you know, involved as like a mentor for so many of the guys on on the team. Um, he was an employee of the organization for 20 years, Tommy. Right, like right. he was like, imagine if that happened, like one of the the most influential people who's touched all these different people's lives. And then all of a sudden, man. So it was like a bomb went off emotionally, right. like all these people that he'd touched for two decades. So anyway, yeah. continue. I just want to really emphasize that yeah. point. Like, yeah, man, people were going through it. People that you that who you just associate them as names who do a job like that are actual human like think about rob palinka on just a human level he's got this responsibility to run this team but like and think of that relationship so yeah people really forget that so yes thank you for bringing this up no yeah no and and it's super devastating and the lakers in many ways i mean obviously like you said because of the angle that kobe was an employee of the org for 20 years that that was one factor but the other factor is kobe was beloved by so many people across the entire league so everybody wanted to pay their pro- their proper respects which is totally fair and appreciated but the other side of that is the lakers had to like have this super prolonged morning where like every single team they were visiting it was like another reminder of what happened to kobe right and and so they had mm. to push through all that the season getting shut down midway through, like when it seemed like right when our momentum was peaking and maybe the momentum of some of our competitors. I don't know if you guys recall, like Paul George was a little banged up before we went into the mm-hmm. the lockdown. Um, they, the Clippers had a few guys. They were trying to integrate new guys that hadn't like Mar- Marcus Morris Sr. had not done anything for them, you know, from mm-hmm. the time they acquired him until we went into the lockdown. Obviously, they added Reggie Jackson. So like it felt like we were going to. Giannis was banged up. We were going to, right, right. So it felt like we were going to kind of ride that momentum into the playoffs and have a strong playoff run. And then everybody had this hard reset. We came back into the bubble. Okay. And, and then another thing that nobody talks about, our starting point guard wasn't with us. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like everybody kind of glossed over this because KCP <laughs> like slotted in during the season at times. I think he started 20 games for us and we played well in that 20 game stretch, but Avery Bradley was a huge loss, and he was doing very, very well in March. His his shooting numbers had had uh, had come up. He was shooting right around his career averages, if not slightly higher. He was adding a perimeter shooting dimension that we didn't have. He obviously, I mean, he dropped twenty four or something on Pat Bev in the clips uh, in March, right before the lockdown. So he was playing super well, and and we pushed through that. And and you know, like you mentioned, the racial injustice stuff, and and so that created more gaps in the bubble. The, you know, we were in the bubble longer than anyone else, except for the Miami Heat. You know, so it, and they were in there as long as we were. And and so like this team was just so resilient. And despite the excuses and the reasons, and they all could have fallen back and said, you know what, most of these guys like we're all on op- we all have player options, like whatever. Let's see what happens, and we'll opt back in and run it back next year and try again. Uh, they pushed through it. They saw that, you know, they, and part of that is having vets, right? Rondo, LeBron, like these guys who know that when you have that window, 
you better go all in for it mm-hmm. because you're not guaranteed anything. I mean, we saw it with the Celtics when they put together their big three in that four-year stretch. They, sure, they won the championship in dominant fashion in the first year. They only made the finals one more time with you know Kevin Garnett in his prime, Paul Pierce in his prime, and Ray Allen t- towards the end, but still... I mean, he had averaged like 25 points a game the year before mm-hmm. that. <laughs> the Celtics acquired him. So, you know, you don't it, – nothing is guaranteed, and so you got to go for it. And and they just – they manned up, and they went for it. And and so I give them so much props uh, for everything they had to push through this year. Yeah, beautifully stated, Tommy. Thanks for summarizing our entire season, essentially. Um, Alan, I want yeah. you to talk about the full circle redemptive quality of this team from top to bottom, whether that's the front office or the players. Um there's a 76ers podcast that I listen to called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez um, podcast, and it's hosted by Spike Eskin and Mike Levin, uh, and they have a really catchy intro song that plays on their Trust the Process hinky worship, and it goes something along the lines of, we were right, y'all, we were right, even when it went wrong, we were right. But I feel like we could steal and borrow those lyrics and apply it to the Lakers team this year. Hold up, Spike yeah. Eskin, Spike Eskin tweeted... <laughs> That the Lakers were the third best team in Los Angeles. <laughs> and then he deleted that shit. You can look this up, right? Google that because you'll That's see hilarious. the Google research, right? I had that shit bookmarked. I was ready. <laughs> I was lobbing that off of the backboard. He deleted that shit. I wanted that. That is amazing. Well, anyway, Spike, you were wrong, bro. You were wrong. We <laughs> were right. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's our season. We were right, y'all. We were right. Even when it went wrong, we were right. And... Um, from Rondo to Avery Bradley to Dwight to Palinka to AD versus the Pelicans, we were right even about all of the young core. All of them have legitimately gotten paid to this point, mm-hmm. right? So yep. it's, it's crazy. And right down to we even got our revenge redemption stories. I mean, just look at Paul George. Seems like a great guy. Was dealing with mental you know, stress and whatnot. But in terms of the basketball decisions he made, shunning us for Russell Westbrook, how's that turned out for him so far? You know, so even right down to that, we got redemption. Uh, but Alan, you know, last year we were talking about Dwight Howard and how conflicted you were about bringing him on. Like, if we, if, if we just, <laughs> well, I mean, look, if we just, even if we Me just too. look at Dwight Howard as a, all of everything that happened with Dwight Howard, right down to, if you remember when he first started showing workout clips of himself, he was taking three pointers and we were all like, what the hell is Dwight doing? Well, joke's on all of us because the three-pointer is the last shot he made of our entire run. You know, it's just yes. like, that is amazing. What an amazing redemption story by Dwight Howard. He's like, you thought those videos were for nothing? Well, here we go. Um, so, Alan, talk to us about how vindicating and satisfying this Lakers championship is just in terms of how many people were counting us out literally right down to the bitter last second even with Anthony Davis and LeBron James on the team. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, everyone can learn a lot from a guy like Dwight Howard and how his mindset has shifted so dramatically over the years and how he talks so much about being present and staying in the moment and just focusing on what he can control, you know, right now and blocking out all the noise and things like that. And I feel like he demonstrated it like 99% of the time. You know, the 1% is when he gets caught up and does his little antics or whatever. But um, even that is like beneficial to our team. So I respect the heck out of that guy for, um, you know, being so resilient. Because having that sort of shift in in focus and mindset is, is a choice, right? And I think it 
it just shows so much growth and maturity from him as a human being. And then to see it translate, obviously, onto the basketball court. I mean, you can see the dividends, right, and how that paid off. And you can't help but it, – it's so obvious that other guys on the team are going to see that, right? They're going to witness that firsthand. And that's going to rub off on them as well, right? So the young guys can learn how they can block things out too. Um, and that that's leadership, right? And I'm not saying like Dwight Howard is, is preaching to the whole team or anything like that and giving these rah-rah type speeches, but just through his actions alone, he's he's really proved himself. So I'm extremely happy for him like on that personal level. And, um, you know, other players who've like had their redemption stories as well, or not players in this case, but like Rob Linka, of course. Um, I mean, the guy's best friends, right, with, with Kobe for how long? And we all know that we are shaped by the people that we surround ourselves with. So if I surround myself with amazing people, that's going to help make me amazing, right? And with all the things that Palinka had to go through, whether it's, you know, people doubting him, saying that he doesn't know, like, the CBA, even though <laughs> the guy's been an agent, right? Like, a top-level agent. Um, and then, of, of course, you know, his best friend, I mean... Like, trying to empathize with what he went through is impossible. You know, I, I yeah. just cannot even imagine. And to continue to do the work, keep the main thing the main thing, as this team has said, um, and, and to see Rob in the bubble, like, closing out on defenders, getting rebounds for guys during practice, like, that shit was so inspiring <laughs> to me, man. I was like, that's, that's some real shit right there. That's amazing. So, um... Yeah, dude, kudos to this team for just putting in the work, right? Like, blocking out all the noise and just just doing the job in every type Mm -hmm. of way and in a very holistic sense. Yeah, there's uh, the closeouts and the rebounding for shooters and things like that. We could only bring, I think it was 35 people to the bubble. And so if you're back at home, you got all these, uh, you know, coaches assistants, right. That are doing things like that, but you can't bring all the bodies, right. So everybody's kind of consolidating jobs and like, there's work to be done that was being done before that was part of our success before, even if it's just being a coach's assistant and rebounding, but you can't bring a coach's assistant here. Well, Rob Polinka saw a job that needed to be done. He walked in and did it. it there was nothing beneath him. Right. He just and that's that is an organizational philosophy that the longer we can stay focused on that, on the doing the job, the chop wood, carry water, as long as we can do that, like we're we're going to be in good shape because we've got enough talented people. But what becomes a problem is when your focus starts to go elsewhere to the accolades or to any of the things that, that come al- along with that. And so Dwight's mentality shift to being present and in the moment and like just doing the work and doing the job. Like, he's still got a lot of that talent, man. He's one of the great players of his generation. And so if he, uh, one of the great players of his generation can be present and in the moment on just the small little details, that 99% of the time, like you said, man, what, an, what a wonderful addition he was to the team this year. Yeah, absolutely. And Pete, I'm going to have, have you speak upon the front office in a second because you're now literally a part of the organization. Um, but I just want to remind you of what you said on our season preview podcast last year. <laughs> 
Last year, you were very diplomatic and reserved with your thoughts on this Lakers team. Uh, uh-huh. we, we joked back then that the slogan to this upcoming season would just be, we've been hurt before, so let's just wait and see. Um, and, <laughs> and obviously, there was a lot of like pent-up distrust and suspicion that had, I think, begun to build amongst a large faction of Lakers Nation to what was going on up top, even when things made a turn for the best um, when we got Anthony Davis. Um, but I don't know, this team in particular, it kind of felt like a fresh downpour of rain that helped wash away all the gunk from the past and the gunk that just wasn't true in the present to begin with and helped really mm-hmm. clear the way for like a renewed vision and perspective on this entire franchise, even if we're having to retroactively go back and mm-hmm. you know connect the dots. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this team and this organization just softened the cynical hearts of many, not to be too hokey, but kind of did. Um, and I'm not just talking about the outside media and non-Lakers fans. I'm talking about Lakers fans directly because it wasn't too sure. long ago when we were absolutely railing on this front office. And really quickly, I'm just going to go through. <laughs> I have a list here of stuff really quickly that I can go through. And oh, you, Lord, here, you here can, we go. You can talk about how things have changed <laughs> and how that perception has changed in your eyes now being part of an organization tangibly. Um, so first we had, you know, one, LeBron James not making the playoffs at all in that injury-ridden first season with the young core. Midway through, we had the the bungled New Orleans Pelicans talks where, you know, maybe Magic was a little bit too forthright and blatant about negotiations and everything fell apart. The locker room seemed very disjointed knowing my name was in that talk. The, the team was kind of never the same after that outside of just the injury aspects of things. And then obviously to close the season, Magic stepped down in the very brazen way that he did. There was hysteria over that and some of the things that Magic said about Palenka, you know, being a snake for, I don't know, trying to usurp him. Even though if you dissect the situation closely, what else was Palenka supposed to do when Magic was in the office 30% of the time? Like, was he just not supposed to do the work? Um, And then obviously hysteria over Genie and the Rambi taking over. Then there was this whole coaching hire debacle that Tommy referenced. Um, people saying Palenka fumbled the bag with Ty Lu, should have given him more money. And even after the fact that Ty Lu walked away from us, I think people were even calling for Palenka to crawl back to Ty Lu and you know ask for forgiveness on his hands and knees. I think something that Palenka in this front office doesn't get enough credit for is the autonomy they had in that coaching hire situation, where they they had stipulations to that job. Ty Lu didn't want it, so they pivoted. And I think that was a smart move. Like, I don't know how they tiered Palenka or how they tiered Vogel and Lou and Monty Williams and stuff, but they probably said, well, if Lou's not going to take this amount of money, we also think Vogel is fit for the job and he's willing to take that amount of money. Why don't we go with him? So I feel like they don't get enough credit for pivoting and having some sort of self-autonomy versus just groveling on their hands and knees like, Ty Lou, take us back, please. And then obviously the AD trade happened, a trade that people didn't think Palenka could pull off. And granted, some of us on here even said he maybe gave up too much. But on top of that, I don't know if you guys remember, there was also mass hysteria as details of that deal were coming about where it came out that, you know, Plink and Genie favored Cal Kuzma over every other young core member and fought to keep his name out of the trade package. Even when later info told us they fought to keep his name out of the package because they had already given up so much. And if New Orleans (laughs) wanted Kuzma, they'd have to swap things out of the current deal. But I think... That just lends to the state of Lakers Nation at the time where any new tidbit of information would just absolutely throw us into a, like a frenzy once uh-huh. again, you know? And then as Alan mentioned, there was Rob presumably not knowing the salary cap after we had already gotten Anthony Davis and not having enough cap space to sign Kawhi. Then Lakers thinking of signing Dwight. What the hell are they thinking? 
And then Ryan West left, and oh my god, what are the Lakers doing? So all of this stuff is going on. Pete, for you, how are you able to sort of eventually sift away all of the muck there throughout the season, even before you were a Lakers employee, and then now that you are there and knowing what the organization is like from top down and everything they've been saying about a collaborative process is very true. Yeah, I guess just tell me about that shift in, in your eyes. So I think it's important to start from the fact that like Laker fans felt that way for a reason. It wasn't all outside narrative yeah. from people who hated you know, just want to see the Lakers fail or want to get clicks based off of the most outrageous thing that you can say. Um, you know, I've been a Laker fan all my life. I'm 40 years old now, and I was really dispirited coming into this season, having seen in context of the previous seven seasons of missing the playoffs. Now, I understood. I've been through a couple of times. I remember after Magic retired, we made the playoffs two years in a row, got knocked out in the first round. Then we missed a year, and it was like, hey, this is where we are, right? And so even as a teenager, I knew, like, yeah, this is my squad. And then Jerry West drafts Nick's Man Exel in the second round, trades for Cedric Sabalos, and all of a sudden we're a first second round team again and they're fun and they're young right so um so it wasn't as long of a downtime and uh but seeing that there were several elements of even the things that, that you said that I think that a Laker fan or and somebody rooting for the success of the team could look at it and say hey in context of everything else that's going on do, do y'all know what you're doing? Like, are we in good hands? There's nobody in the front office in their current position who had been successful in their current position, right? Like, I should have given much more benefit of the doubt to Palinka, even if it's strictly on the basis of this is the guy that Kobe trusted mm-hmm. with his career. And Kobe didn't yeah. didn't suffer fools. He tr- in, And he entrusted his career to this guy. He must be the real deal in terms of the work, right? He can't be all con artist or, or any of the, right? You know, like, it, you, he's actually about it. And um, so I, I made several mistakes in my evaluation that were based on the benefit of the doubt is one of the most powerful things you can have, right? Because you will see the best in someone or the worst in someone, and all of it is true to some degree, right? It's just a matter of how much you uh, emphasis you put on them is based on your opinion of them. But they hadn't done much, right? Mm-hmm. And they, had, I was at the point where I was like, you got to show me. And it, every step of the way that one thing I've learned with being with the team is just it's so hard to like the the Lakers are on such a watchful eye that anything can be misconstrued into any kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's part of, part of that whole like chop wood, carry water mentality is like these external things with the stupid media narratives, like Rob doesn't understand the cap and things like that. It's like, what can we do about them? Like they're going to be there. So that's part of the reality that people have to face when you're in the job and then just be like, okay, so knowing that as taking that as a fact, how do we, how do we move forward? How do we do our job with that being a reality? Um, So again, I've learned so much and I like, I, it's been, it's been so wonderful being an employee now because I really worried about, Gosh, what if I don't like it here? Like, obviously, I love being with the Lakers, but like, what if this, like, what if it's full of people that, like, I, I find are shady or not about what they're supposed to be about in their job? Like, they're most of the time people that I, I don't like are very self serving in their motivations, right? And so they know how to make themselves look good, but they aren't the about the actual content or the greater good, right? Of that that benefits everyone from a basketball perspective. But what I've learned is that like, oh, there's a bunch of people that are really 
like me in this sense of that they they share this kind of ethos on some level uh and is they are about doing the work they are about doing the um about being good at what they do like Josh Williams he's a if you watch Laker games he's the like six foot six redheaded dude that's Mm -hmm. on the baseline with the camera right and uh and Josh been here for like 12 years Josh is so good at his job and he's the guy I've gotten become a way better editor because of Josh I digress um the that whole mentality and seeing how it permeates the organization has like seeing it in the work that they did up through March or so on the court, like, and that comes from watching the tape. That's how I went through this kind of progression and, and from being very cynical about this team to like, oh, if you're paying attention to what's going on, oh, look at this. And then like, could they be? And then by March, it's like, oh my God, they are in this team that I <laughs> hope that they were. And then, like you said, the it, it gets, uh, the season gets suspended, but being hired and then seeing people like Josh like really kick ass at all of the little details of the mm-hmm. job. Like I'll make a, a little mistake on a video that I'm making. He's he's patient with me and he explains it, but it's like, yo, like we're going to do better on putting the right watermark in or in the right location, even if it's just a little bit off or a little bit too big. Like it's about being good at the job and at the details of your job. And that is such a a philosophy that permeates onto the court. It goes to Vogel, Palinka, uh, and this, and it all starts with Jeannie. This is Jeannie's, like, Jeannie is really, um, my appreciation for her as a leader has, and seeing how she, her influence touches so many parts of the organization in a really positive way that, uh, yeah, that's, that's been kind of how I've gone through this process from being very cynical, very reserved in my opinions, (laughs) skeptical about the team to like, oh, we're actually about it. And then learning why we -hmm. were able to do that in this overall organizational philosophy. I feel like I've experienced like the coolest fan experience of all time to know why, like to learn why actually your favorite team doesn't suck. And they're actually really awesome (laughs) in all these ways. And this is, you get the inside scoop on it too. It's like, yeah, man, I'm really proud to be a Laker. Well, everything that we were railing on this organization for early on, especially when Jim and Mitch were here about being a mom and pop shop, all of the best qualities of that actually have come to the surface. And I've heard stories before. I had like a friend that used to work for the Lakers as well. And he would tell me, you know, that mailman over there, he's worked for the Lakers for like the past Mm -hmm. 20 years. And Jeannie sent his daughter like a wedding gift or actually went to the wedding herself. You know, like that notion of family. Yeah. Hundreds of stories about Jeannie like that. Hundreds of stories. Like she's incredible, man. So it's it's easy to see why like you'd have such hardworking individuals when the Lakers foster that foundational groundwork already and allow that to happen. So Tommy, really quickly, I'll give you a minute to talk about the front office and then we'll pivot and talk about this Lakers team. So yeah, just talk about how you were able to see even back then, I guess the forest from the trees, even when everything was going haywire. I think for me, like the biggest item for me that, and this is not to say that we're retroactively going back and saying everything that they did was right, It's more so, I think for me, I I looked at everything incrementally um, and I was able to sift through stuff and parse out, okay, what did they do well here? What did they do well here? What are they trying Mm -hmm. to do better here? And for me, the biggest item that probably was a misstep was shackling Palinka to magic in the first place. Yes. The the new regime never really got started, in my opinion, until Palinka was at the helm by himself. And so that was the new rubric that I was going off of. And even when Magic was gone, I feel like Palinka still had to scrape off some of the damage that had already, already been done, namely to negotiations surrounding the Pelicans. Much in the way that both of them had to try and erase the sins of the past from the Jim Buss and Kupchak era, Palinka had to do that on the fly. So, Tommy, like, how are you able to, even in the 
midst of all that, just sift through the mess. So the one guy I think I always had faith in, and maybe I, you know, it fortunately, I guess was not blind faith in hindsight because it all worked out. But the one guy I always had faith in was uh, Rob. Um, Rob is like, you know, Kobe, Kobe had such a big influence on me. Just, you know, obviously I, I started watching basketball when I was like, you know, seven or whatever in 1996, which happened to coincide with Kobe's rookie year. And I remember not knowing anybody in the NBA except for like Michael Jordan. And, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to get used to who all these people are on the Lakers because they're the hometown team. And, you know, Kobe always stood out to me at that time. I mean, obviously he was young, so you relate to him when you're, you're also young, you kind of relate to him for that reason. And, and so I've just always trusted him. Rob was not with Kobe for his entire career, right? I think Arn Tellum was Kobe's first agent. Mm-hmm. Um, Arn Tellum, very respected, eventually ended up getting a job, I think, in the front office with the Pistons or something. Um, mm-hmm. And Rob, you know, was working under Arn, Arn Tellum, and Kobe must have seen something. Kobe was not like the type of guy, particularly at like that later stages in his career, to just make a haphazard decision. He would not have left one of the most, you know, prominent, well-known, well-respected and and well-tenured agents in the league unless he felt strongly about it. And for him to choose Rob, I always felt like I always thought was a big deal. Rob is actually one of the one of the main reasons I ended up becoming a lawyer to be honest because I I remember sitting around thinking one day, like, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my, maybe I'm getting too much off on the tangent here, but like, you know, I'm, I'm an undergrad. I was, I was pre-med and I just didn't see a future with that route. Right. And I'm trying to think like, what else can I do? You know, I, I started thinking like, well, I wonder like what Kobe's agent, like how did, how did he get to where he is now? And what was the path he kind of took? And I saw that Rob went to Michigan law school. I saw that which is a top law school, obviously. He graduated at the top of his class. He worked in big law for two years. And I I never, I, I just kind of viewed that as like, a, maybe if I follow a sort of similar path, everything will kind of fall into place too. So when Rob first came up as a name associated with the Lakers front office position, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, they're looking at Kobe's former agent and kind of glossing over it a little bit. And when I first saw that name, I was like, I know exactly who this is because I've been tracking him for a long time. And I think this would be a fantastic hire. I mean, I think I, I, you know, and and I always kind of felt back on if he's good enough for Kobe, he's going to be good enough for me. He's going to be good enough for the team. Kobe would not choose someone to represent him in, you know, the most important aspect of his life. If he thought that guy was an idiot or if he thought that there was somebody who was better, um, and and so I always, always, always had that that feeling in the back of my mind that Rob will figure this out. And I agree with you 100% about the magic thing. Everybody loves magic, but I mean, if you just the things he says and and the you know it just didn't really align with like the forward thinking, uh, you know, the forward thinking mindset that I sort of thought that um, that Rob carried. So. Once he kind of got out of the way, I thought this is now Rob's chance to really put his own stamp on the team. I thought the signings last summer made a lot of sense, whereas the year before they weren't necessary. The year before, it felt like a 1980s, 1990s basketball guy being like, well, let's get some tough guys in here. <laughs> you know, yeah. Let's get some veterans <laughs> it's in. perfect. Like, yeah. I saw, Lance Stam- I saw Lance Stevenson play in the playoffs, and he was blowing in LeBron's ear like he's a tough he's a tough defender. Like, let's get him. You know what I mean? It felt it, – and not to like – I know I'm simplifying it, and I don't want to trash like those decisions too much because nobody really knew, but – <laughs> but uh, 
it, it, it felt like there was some nuance that was being missed. Mm-hmm. And with Rob, I, I felt like that was just not going to be the case. And we saw the results play out. So, you know, despite all the noise and everything that came up this season, my faith in the front office was always, I knew that I, I had faith that Rob was going to figure it out and, and he ended up doing it. Absolutely. They figured it out. They hired Pete. That's the biggest testament to the Lakers are doing everything right. So with that said, (laughs) we'll take it to break. And when we return, we'll actually talk about this historic dominant Lakers team. All right, Alan, I'm going to pitch this next question to you. And then Pete, you can jump in as well. I I feel like in our season preview last year, we talked about how I I mentioned that I felt like this team was a little bit of reminded me of the 2009-10 Lakers in terms of their versatility. And then, Pete, you mentioned that you thought they were kind of like the Kobe and Shaq Lakers because of their two dominant superstars, and then everybody else around them just played defense, you know? And, and you mentioned <laughs> back then, too, that if this Lakers were to reach the heights that they were supposed to or could, it would fall on defense and the type of team defensively they could build around these two guys. Um, now I have a revised version of, of how I frame this team to the past because... I actually feel like they're a fusion of both eras. They are. They had the overpowering dominant duo in Anthony Davis and LeBron James equals Kobe and Shaq, and obviously a more egalitarian style of contribution from their role players that reminded you of those Kobe and Shaq teams. But they also had the versatility, size, and speed of the Kobe, Powell, Lamar, Bynum teams. And in some ways, borrowing from the 2009-10 Lakers, LeBron is like if you fuse Kobe and Odom together in terms of the scoring and Mamba mentality, but also Odom had the size, length, and playmaking that LeBron James had. So just imagine Kobe and Odom being fused together. And then, so I would argue yeah. that... Oh, good, no, no, you, you're going to say it. You're going to say it. Uh, the ahead, last, in terms of Anthony Davis, it's like <laughs> if you fused Andrew Bynum and Powell together, but added athleticism on, and sheer freakish length on top of that. So you have Bynum's length and, and freaky wingspan, but the smart skill and touch that Powell had. So I would say... Gosh, it's almost like AD's almost like a fusion of all three. Because I was going to say Odom and Bynum, because okay, like yeah. AD, AD does some like big man things that are just like, ah, I'm going to dunk on your face, right? Like, and so that's what Bynum had that physicality, right? But AD's ball handling is nuts. And Lamar Odom, I remember all the way back to the Rhode Island days, right? When he played in, in that one year at Rhode Island, where it was just like, oh, dude, that size. Like, AD's got the best ball handling I've ever seen from a player at that size. And Lamar is like one of the few that are at least that tall, but AD's a bigger type of dude. So yeah, mm-hmm. to me, it was like, but your point about Powell, right? He's got that smart, the smarts and the, and the touch. Yeah, like, especially his touch, like his shooting touch. Neither Bynum nor Odom had that. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, like AD's almost like, all three of those dudes fused together and oh man what a talent yeah it's crazy so yeah alan talk about this historic duo in lebron james and anthony davis and if this team reminds you of like portions of the past teams that we've seen in the last 20 years i mean i echo everything (laughs) that you just said um how freaking blessed are we that we have Anthony Davis on this team? I mean, just oh saying gosh. like he is like pow and he's like all these other players just wrapped yeah. into Stupid. one is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. God. Um, I mean, AD got to the point, right, where it felt like Kobe when he was shooting mid-range jumpers to bail us out of a broken possession, right? It's like, mm-hmm. all right, six seconds on the cl- shot clock. There's no movement, whatever. He's just going to jack up an 18-foot jumper, and it's probably going to go in. It's like, yeah. so, yeah, that's totally like Pow because Pow had that shot. But then it's like Kobe in terms of the aggression, right? Because Pow sometimes might shy away from those types of moments. Um, so the mentality is there, and, yeah, dude, it's... 
It's crazy, man. It's just insane. Um, but yeah, to talk about the duo of Braun and AD, um, I mean, LeBron spoke so much to it during his press conferences about how they're not jealous of each other. You know, so many people perceive that as, oh, that's like a shot at Kyrie or whatever. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't really care. I think that in any kind of successful partnership, like that is what you need is that mutual trust in each other. And again, like if you both have the same goal, for the group, that there's no selfishness involved whatsoever. It's not self-serving. You aren't thinking about yourself. Then, like everything's gonna take care of itself. And sure, you see them like, like getting at each other a little bit. But of course, it's just because they want what's best for the team. And if you're that passionate, yeah, you're gonna get a little bit heated. But it doesn't mean anything. And I don't think there's ever a doubt in any of our minds that, um, that that mutual um like mindset and the fact that there's like zero animosity whatsoever in this partnership just made it so much fun to watch mm-hmm. there's no distractions there's no bullshit right um and if if you have that i mean you could argue what percentage of the pie that is in terms of contribution to success um the fact that they're so physically gifted and all those things too um it's a perfectly balanced equation so yeah, just trying to take it all in and be present again. And like, dude, we are witnessing something right now. We're witnessing this thing. And like, we cannot take for granted like any freaking one second of a game. Yeah, so this is the open floor area where we're just going to open it up to talk about this duo. You can talk about LeBron James or Anthony Davis individually. Like as Alan mentioned in terms of their dispositions towards each other, I've described these two as Kobe and Shaq circa 2000, 2002 in terms of their overpowering dominance, physicality, and historical statistics, but their friendship and chemistry reminds me way more of Kobe and Powell, except Mm -hmm. in this sense, the roles are flipped where while Powell was the younger player that needed to reach that next gear, there was no question back then that Kobe was still the best player at age 28 when they were paired up together. So in this scenario, 80s like 2000 Kobe, but with 2009 Powell's experience and mindset. And LeBron James is 2000 Shaq, but with Kobe's matured perspective and mentorship of Powell in 2009, 2010. A little confusing, but I think you guys get what I'm saying. So um, Tommy and Pete, if you guys just want to talk about this historic duo and how that foundation of them, again, it's like if Kobe and Shaq liked each other from the get-go of that dynasty how much longer could we be talking about them as a duo um yeah i mean i I was gonna say i i think you know we were talking about the copycat league stuff earlier right and i think for so long it's been a big three league or a big three type of league like every you know you have your two guys but who's the third guy who's that you hear the commentators Mm -hmm. talk about this kind of stuff all the time too right and i want to say it was actually it might have been Trudell, actually. It might have been on maybe on Pete's podcast. I, at, at some point, I heard this before the season, but you know, they they were doing some fan questions or something, and somebody raised this issue of like, well, do we have enough, right? And Trudell's response, I remember, and I don't remember where he said it, but I remember he said, you know, I think there's a little bit of overthinking happening. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, we have mm-hmm. AD and we have LeBron. And I think like it had been so long that two guys this dominant and that and that certainly that versatile had had been paired together. Frankly, I, I don't know if ever, certain, maybe not even in my lifetime, maybe since Kobe and Shaq, and they weren't even as versatile as AD, AD and LeBron, right? But um, I, I think... You know, I there was there was definitely some degree of overthinking, and, it, and it's crazy when you put these guys together. Everything worked out 
as intended. These guys are phenomenal, brilliant NBA players. They were great individually. They were great together. We should have all seen this coming. I guess is where where I stand in hindsight. For me, I'm the seeing it coming. So AD is better than I thought he was, but I knew he yeah. was. I knew he was like a top five, seven guy. But this playoff run, I was like, oh, like the stuff that Allen was talking about. Those shots where it, and and so that it's funny when we were talking about like who he's a hybrid of this and that. Neither of us brought up Kobe. And that triple yeah. threat game and that like mid post type of game becomes so important in the playoffs. And because the defense is going to win some possessions where obviously it would be great if we got to the rim every time or got an open catch and shoot three every time. But the defense is trying to prevent you from doing that and they're going to win sometimes. And so that ability to, oh, well, we tried to run some shit and it didn't work. And like you said, Alan, like six seconds left here. Here you go. Uh, and a lot of times we do that as a first option with AD, but he's got so many of those triple threat abilities where he catches and faces, still has a live dribble, jab step. It's all this skill work type stuff where I've grown, my appreciation of, of LeBron's skills have grown. Like he is, he knows how to be a powerful player and all of the technique involved with that. And I'm going to make a video uh, at, at some point of just like the technique within his power. Cause it's not just like, Oh, he's big and fast and boom. Like he knows exactly when to hit a guy to get the maximum leverage and get a guy off balance. So there's a whole like world of technique that LeBron has mastered that he's a different, like I got into avatar right uh, over the, and, and I don't know if, it, if you guys are into it, but like uh, LeBron's like an earthbender and, Kobe is more like Fire Nation and AD, but it's it's like so this like skill set, this mastery of of the technical aspects that Kobe had that allowed when you put that next to like an avatar who's an earthbender in LeBron, like LeBron has some of that. There's nothing that LeBron can't do on the basketball court, but he's not like a mid post triple threat guy very often. He has some play like against Toronto, right? He's getting hitting all them fadeaways, but it's not like right. it's not. He's got a different. Do you, am I making sense? Yeah. Like this is Absolutely. a different type of game. So when you've got two different guys who are like the best in the world at their different styles of mastering basketball. I didn't realize AD had all this triple threat game that he had, like to the degree that he's got it. And then at the end, at the def if he doesn't make the right move, he still like elevates and he's 12 feet in the air when he's shooting the fucking jumper. And so like he reaches this plane that he, that even if you played good defense, like at some point, if he gets the ball up here, like you hope he misses, but there's not much you can do about it. And so, yeah, man, like that, that synergy between the two types of brilliance, uh, kind of both radiating on the same team combined with how cohesive the defense was, man. This is like, I remember those teams. I remember those teams before they had 20 years worth of uh, propaganda and uh, <laughs> belovedness from the Lakers. I remember their flaws. I remember how they pissed me off. I remember how it wasn't always as pretty as we might remember it 20 years later. Man, this team, this 2020 team is right up there with all of them. I, and I, I would say right at the top, honestly. Well, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, like you mentioned, Pete, they're almost like a mosaic of all different fusions of players. And like mm -hmm. Anthony Davis is like this new evolution of that. LeBron James yeah. was the start of that, that new era of this. I mean, I guess Magic Johnson was the start of yeah, LeBron it's James happening. took it a new it's level, always happening. right? There's like a new guy to do that almost it, every right. generation. Yeah. And, you know, for me, Anthony Davis, another like fusion comp that I came up with is 
I feel like he reminds me of Kevin Garnett with prime Anton Jameson, just tack on more athleticism and ball handling. KG in the sense that the lanky build, but his dominance defensively and his proclivity for taking mid-range Jays and knocking them down at a high rate. And then Jameson with regards to Anthony Davis's slitheriness as a seven-footer, his fluid way of moving around the basket and in the paint and all those quirky shots he puts up where he's off the, like jumping off the wrong foot, fading left or right. That was like an Anton Jameson staple, you know? And so it's crazy that you could, yeah, that you can describe Anthony Davis in this mosaic sort of way. And maybe his three-point shot continues to progress the way Jameson's progressed, where by the end of Jameson's career, he was hitting two threes a game on like 39% shooting. I think Anthony Davis was like 1.4 or something in the playoffs on like 38. So he, he may be on his way there, but even if he's not just crazy two-way ability, and most of all, I think the word to describe both of them is just ultimate elite versatility, right? Yeah. So I guess to close this episode real quick, I just want to touch upon some, some other contributing players that helped LeBron James and Anthony Davis on their quest. Pete, I heard you like analogies. I heard your show loves analogies. Um, uh-huh. Alan has an analogy for you with regards to Rajon Rondo, so I'll let Alan take it away. Oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> All right, so uh, Rajon Rondo is like that kid that you go to school with and never turns in the homework. Right, he's he's kind of daydreaming during class, but you know he has all of this potential. Like, man, if this person just applied themselves, they wouldn't be getting C's and D's. They'd for sure be getting A's, and they'd be crushing it. And then all of a sudden, you have like a midterm, final presentation, whatever it is, and they blow everyone out of the water, and they step their game up when it matters most. And you're like, where where was this this whole freaking time? And the kids like. Man, all that other stuff like was so boring and like I'm fascinated with other like bigger things and busy work and homework and those sorts of assignments. But yeah. when something's actually challenging and fun and, and gets me intellectually like stimulated, then I'm going to go all out with it. So I think Rondo is that that student. <laughs> and we've all um, had examples of that student. But Pete, to add on top of Alan's analogy, I have an analogy of my own for playoff Rondo. So... Pete, I don't know if you've ever started a serialized show or, or a movie that's one of those mysterious thrillers where by intention you have no idea what's going on at the start. Uh-huh. Or, yeah, like a psychological thriller where you're shrouded with questions for the first like 10 episodes. You know mm-hmm. the director, you know the writers of the show, you know the resume is impressive. But given how the show started where you're left with more question marks after each episode than answers, and on top of that, you're not even sure if any future answer is worth slogging through this series of episodes, you're like, okay, this is episode 15, and I'm not even sure if I'm enjoying myself in a vacuum with each episode (laughs) anymore, right? Uh Uh-huh. And so, at this point, though, you've watched 15 episodes. You may as well see this thing through. And then, in the last four episodes of the season, or maybe even the last 15 minutes of that movie, here comes the twist. Here comes the payoff moment that unlocks and unravels the entire season and connects all the dots. Nay, connects fours all the dots. Forcing Uh. you to reframe (laughs) how you viewed episode one all the way till now. So even though it seems cheap that a few episodes or just the last 15 minutes of a two-hour movie would completely change your mind about the whole film or series, it kind of was all worth it. It was worth it for that payoff moment. And Pete, it was worth it for that playoff Rondo moment, payoff Rondo moment that makes the whole (laughs) awkward, weird season and movie make sense. So Pete, talk to me about your revelations with playoff Rondo. So yeah, I'm going to start with yours and then I'll uh, address Alan's, right? 
So, no, that is, we were not starting on season one of Rondo. I loved Rondo, like, as much as I could love a Celtic. I was like, that dude's fucking awesome, man. He was like, I, so, you know, my meager playing career, I played as much basketball as my talent would let me. And I was able to sometimes hang at, at some point there was a breaking point, but I was clever, right? Like I knew the passing angles that I needed at my small size to get around that big that would have sent that shit into the 10th row if I tried to shoot that or how to put my body into a big so that I could finish around the rim without him blocking my shot or how to use a ball fake and who would bite on it and who wouldn't, when to make that swing pass, when to attack the close. Like I knew kind of, like the things that I had control over, I knew at a younger age, right? So I could like hang in places where athletically I didn't quite have those gifts. So Rondo is one of the patron saints of players like me, right? The guy that didn't quite have the same physical gifts that, or and I could shoot a little bit, but I wasn't a great ball handler, right? But but he he figured the game out in a way that exceeded like obviously he's got physical talent too but he's not like never been the high leaper and the game has changed significantly since he entered the league his yeah. type of point guard does not really exist that much anymore and so rondo was always a guy i really admired for i knew how brilliant he was there there, there was not some like uh, like i knew exactly the guy that rondo was and really loved him as a player he was the best player in multiple playoff series when he was younger. What I thought the TV show was, was like a Walking Dead type thing, where at some point, you're like, <laughs> I thought we had, like, it was over, right? Like, it was like, yo, this shit went off the rails. <laughs> it, ain't ha- it ain't coming back, right? So we were not starting on season one with Rondo when Rondo got here. I thought, and I am happy to see that it. you're right, that the dots did end up connecting, that, that he still had it, that he was still able to tie all of that together and have it all make sense. Where at the end of this year, I'm like, oh, he was saving himself for the playoffs. Of course he was. He's getting older. He's got injury issues, right? He only got so many of these left in the tank. Uh, I've seen enough vets, where, but he sure. can still do it when he needs to. As for Al... Go ahead, please. Go, no, 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 go ahead. Please, no, please. No. I was just going to say the parallel to Rondo in, in the first part of my analogy would be to the writers and the directors that you've seen before, but they're starting a new show and you're just not sure if this new show, even though you trust the resume, sure. makes any sense and if they're over the hill writing and directing at this point. So that, No, that's and that's it. Right, that over the hillness. And that's not an insult to, to Rondo or anyone else. That's part of it, man. I, yeah. I feel myself getting older. I, I get it. Um, but it, that's part of it. As for Alan's, like, I was that student right like I didn't go to college I was like uh, I'd be finishing my homework like on the bus the last like let's turn this bullshit in and like you know like it was yeah and and so I I I I co-sign on that sorry Jonathan I'm less uh I'm less attached to no, yours that's but fine. yeah you're absolutely right and he's still capable of doing it Tommy do you have a Rajon Rondo analogy for yourself as well don't want to make you feel left out I don't have one. I can't match any of these, so we'll, we'll continue. Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm just going to run through like a few other players, and people can jump in if they want to, but we'll close this episode out. I just want to really quickly give props to KCP. Uh, this is one guy that I personally, for me, did not give the benefit of the doubt to, even though everybody else did. And I'll tell you why I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. It's because when we first signed him, I feel like KCP let me down the most. And when you have that really bad letdown oh, yeah. he almost can't yeah. rebound from it uh-huh. um i mean me and me and tommy had this whole you down with kcp yeah you know me you know thing me. going on uh-huh. Uh-huh. and and, and then, then you got hurt and then yeah hurt and then you. he got hurt and, and tommy actually <laughs> incepted me with this idea where he was like 
Yo, KCP's giving me some really strong Wesley Johnson vibes. And ever oh, since that wow. moment, I was That's like, evil, Tommy. I can't evil. get that out of my brain. You know, I don't know if I can ever fully embrace or trust this guy. Um, and this season, I have to apologize. I have to eat crow. And we also have to give Dwight Howard props for defending him on Instagram, you know, consoling KCP and telling him I've gone through this, but like five years worth of this. Um, but KCP was this, he essentially became a, our shorter version of Trevor Ariza this year, his rise into reliability on both ends. And ironically, he kind of faces a similar free agent landscape that Ariza did coming off of his first championship win with the Lakers. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and I think the first two years, obviously, because LeBron James and Anthony Davis weren't there, he was doing a little bit too much, and that's where we saw his flaws. Um, but this year, he recalibrated his role correctly, slotted right into that 3 and D template, and with the help of LeBron and AD, kind of caught his second wind as a Laker and really never looked back from there. And now hitting big shots in the finals and living up to his Palenka-gifted moniker of manna from heaven. Does anybody want to say a quick one-two on KCP? Only thing I'll say about KCP is I was, I mean, his redemption this season has been absolutely insane, right? I, I was at the game in, in November or so where we played Miami at home and we won that game, but KCP was like getting booed off his home court. You know what I mean? I, he would, that was early in the season when he was still really struggling to get things going. Um, he put together like a several month stretch where he was hitting 40% from three he hit, I think, 38, 39% over the, over the course of our bubble run. Um, not only proved himself to be a valuable, you know, role player in the sense that he could shoot, but when you have a guy who you can also just throw out there and say, We're, we might not run any plays for you, but please go guard the most effective ball handler on the other side. I, it's not an easy role to fill. It's not an easy position. You know, God forbid if he walks this summer or this offseason, it won't be easy to replace that. Um but, you know, just endless props to KCP. I hope Clutch and KCP remember that we drastically overpaid him a couple of years ago. And hopefully they give us a little bit of a discount this year. But I don't I'm not I'm not optimistic about that. Um, and yeah, who could who could forget that before this season, the lasting clip of KCP was I felt like that Kobe Bryant, Kobe walking out of the gym after KCP tried to look <laughs> a game winning shot and it airballed. So what a redemption story and redemption arc for real. Tommy and then Pete, I know you want to talk about Alice Caruso really quick. So, I mean, sorry, Alan, talk about Caruso really quick. True underdog story from meme to mainstay when hard work and preparation meet opportunity, meets opportunity. That's Alice Caruso. So, Alan, quickly talk about Alice Caruso. And then, Pete, I'll let you have the Caruso talk after that. I mean, he's a guy that defines, like, I'm not supposed to be here. You know what I mean? Just going all the way back to college when he's at Texas A&M, and then he's with the Thunder D-League team, and just the whole thing, dude. And us getting hyped about him during Summer League, like, oh, dang, like, who is this dude, right? And, like... <laughs> Just for the record, like, my mom watches the Lakers, too, right? And she identifies, like, I like this Caruso kid all the way back in my Vegas, My dad, too. You know? My dad, too, yes. Yeah, you can just, like, some people got that eye, right, for that talent. So, um, it's just insane that he has obviously come this far, right, where he's starting in an NBA Finals closeout freaking game. Um, if you had told him that back when he was in college trying to make it to the NBA, I don't know if you... 
I don't know if he would have believed you, right? I mean, he's confident for sure, but he's definitely got that 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 chip right on his shoulder of um, you just look at the guy and he's an instant meme, right? And um, he just puts his head down and he works freaking hard and he's he's super underrated, you know. And uh, you, you gotta love the Crusoe story. There's not much else I gotta add. Yeah. It's, it's so fun because he's got all of that narrative built around him as the underdog, right? As the balding white guy who can dunk on your face, right? Like, come on, who's that guy? Come on. And, but he's like legitimately, he's a, he's a great cutter. He's a great screen setter. He's mentally locked in for more of the game than most players, like almost anyone is. Um, he's a phenomenal defender who works very hard at, you know, scouting like he's good at the job right he's not just a meme and that was kind of the the thing that was always the what was so gratifying right about going from he was a dnpcd on opening night behind quinn cook and troy daniels quinn cook and troy daniels both played on opening night alex crusoe did not despite being healthy he started game six of the nba finals where we fucking we we, where we blew out the other team think about that and like so he's earned every bit of ground in his NBA career, right? And it's not because he's, uh, you know, a meme or any narrative. Like, he's good at these parts of basketball that matter that if you just zoom in a little bit and take a closer look at and be like, oh, yeah, I could totally see how that got Anthony Davis open on a flex cut because AC made sure to pay attention to detail and square up the the defender's shoulder to the middle of his chest make the a with a wide base with your feet this is mastery of fundamentals of all of the boring stuff that you work on in the gym right of like this is how you you know jump stops to screen set and make sure that you uh make contact on the screen and all of a sudden the guy who's supposed to be defending ad is this really big guy but he's got some weight on him in a in Alex Crusoe because Crusoe squarely hit him with that screen. That doesn't happen by accident, and it's not unimportant. It's it's what underlies all of the best two man net rating type stuff, and then that explodes even further with LeBron and AD. And that's why when we started him, when the news came out that we were going to start him, I'm like, oh yeah, we're not we're not fucking around anymore. <laughs> like like this is the lineup that like this was always the lineup we were going to go to because I knew mm-hmm. we had been holding something in reserve, and it was so gratifying to see that like yeah. Alex. As soon as I saw that, I was like, of course. And then I was like, yeah, this is this is the night where all that shit I've been talking in the group chat, like, yeah, we're about to fuck him up. Like, this is where, you know, we really see the, the manifestation of that. And so it's just really gratifying to see. I feel a kinship to him, too, of, mm-hmm. be, of like kind of he and I came up in our respective Lakerness at the same time. And uh, I, he's the only NBA player I've been able to have a one on one conversation with in a like in an interview type of setting. And this is like 2017. And so it's just like on a personal level, on a yeah, yeah. the basketball principles I believe in. Like Alex Caruso is so validating and gratifying, and I'm just so happy for him. Alex Caruso could be one of the box on this Skype call doing a podcast. He looks like any one of us, <laughs> but he, right. instead he's a championship winning basketball player. And huge props to Frank Vogel for actually realizing that. And you know, yeah. I know that was one of the doubts with Vogel coming into the season. Would he be able to give? Alex Caruso, his own autonomy, and game six, he's starting. So, um, okay, so last, last thing, Pete, I wanted to get your opinion on would be Cal Kuzma. He had an up-and-down mixed bag sort of year. He grew leaps and bounds defensively, and the game sort of slowed down for him on that end, although he still obviously has a lot of room to grow, especially when it comes to defending with ref savviness in mind. Um, Uh His three-point shot came and went, although he did shoot 52% from the baselines. 
Overall, offensively, he toggled back and forth between being effective and sort of ghosting himself as well, especially in the playoffs. Granted, he had a huge role reversal this year from averaging 19 points the season prior to having to really adapt and adjust to playing with two superstars. And I think out of anyone this season, you could probably see Kuzma's gears turning the most when he was out there, kind of overthinking too much and almost trying to not make mistakes versus being aggressive and decisive, which in turn made him make more mistakes. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on Kuzma and his role on this team moving forward. In a lot of ways, I feel like Bubble Kuzma, and I'm speaking more so during the reseeding games and then the first two series against the Blazers and Rockets, Bubble Kuzma was an extension and continuation of what we saw from him with Team USA, where he was fully bought in, was playing great defense, shooting the ball well from the outside, and was just this ultimate glue utility guy to the point where if he hadn't sprained his ankle back then, he probably would have made the final cut, right? Um, So I think one thing that I think if I could play armchair psychologist with Kuz a little bit, I think Team USA and having to play with other stars set him up well for this year. I do think he kind of psyched himself out, though, at times and used the I'm just fitting in mantra as an excuse to fade into the background sometimes and Mm -hmm. fall Mm -hmm. into that trap of being timid because he didn't want to make any mistakes and frame that as and he eventually framed that as him just accepting his role. But I think we've seen when Kuzma's been effective, even when he's not putting up buckets and when he's just versus when he's just like flat out floating on the perimeter. So I think for me, if he could find a better balance moving forward of knowing like what it means to be a valuable supplementary player while still being aggressive offensively and channeling some of his like rookie sophomore year cues and just like not psyching himself out so much to the point where he's afraid to do anything wrong. I think that's where we'll get like the most optimal level of cues, this two-way player in cues that and maybe he eventually more resembles Trevor Ariza with a little bit more upside, but that's kind of all this team needs. So just your thoughts on Kuz in general. Yeah, Kuz is a rhythm player, right? He's at his best when he's flowing and decisive and learning really how to play championship caliber basketball and all of the little micro decisions that I was just giving Alex Crusoe praise for. Learning how to get better at those things really engendered a lot of the, I have to think right now about like, what am I supposed to do on this play rather than just letting it flow. But I, we did see in the seeding games and in at points of the playoffs that he became more decisive and more comfortable in in those spaces. And so we saw a lot, uh, especially early on, a lot of like impressive two-way games, right? I think that as the playoffs got on, the level of defense increases to the point where mm-hmm. it overwhelmed his skill set. Like he mm-hmm. needs to become uh, like a more knockdown shooter in his role. Uh, he needs to, on when attacking his closeouts, like he needs to understand the right pass to make better and so there's film room development as well where just like the level of basketball kind of exceeded where he's at as uh in in terms of his offensive skill set and so he would come and go right and a lot of it would depend on whether or not he had that corner three in that particular game the a lot of those flowing fast break even though we because of our defense were able to still get on the break more than most teams are in the playoffs and Kuz benefited from that I think that he will be able to hit the ground running a little bit more because he will be thinking less and less like he knows the things that he's supposed to be doing. And so I think that next year, year two, when he's not as in his head and can Mm -hmm. be more decisive and reactive, I think that you're going to see a better offensive year from him next season. Yep, totally agree. Well, Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you close us out too and just talk about how good this Lakers team and this 
this front office can be into the decade. I remember last season as well, you, you were worried, or I guess you felt like we could have had our cake and eat it too in terms of building out mm-hmm. a long dynasty if we sure. hadn't given up so many pieces. But seeing how this year played out and just more focusing on LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and I also don't want to overlook the fact that, at least personally for me, I'm still amazed that for a good few hours in that game five game, I thought we had lost Anthony Davis and I thought the Lakers oh. curse was back on. And I was like, oh, Dude. this may just never line up ever for us. You know what I mean? Like we might yeah. win the championship maybe, but at what cost? You know, yeah. so I don't want to overlook that because I don't feel like people are talking about that too much. Just like how close we were. And who knows, you know, gladly he still has time off to rest and re- rehabilitate. But we were this close to maybe losing yeah. it all. But we dodged a bullet there. So now looking at LeBron James and Anthony Davis and how they both can kind of rejuvenate each other um, in different respects. Can LeBron James be Anthony Davis's David Robinson to Tim Duncan? And I guess in another vein, can LeBron be our Tim Duncan to 80s Kawhi Leonard? And then this being the start of a really solid foundation that we can really build out much longer than even the Kobe and Shaq era. I don't know if we'll win as many championships, but the sustained period of contention might be there. Yeah, absolutely. Because so much of, especially in the finals, seeing LeBron turn it up to his max capacity, so many of his buckets were a result of being bigger than you and being a ball handler, right? Like if you can dribble and you've got a size advantage, you can get yourself to the basket whenever you want because you're sealing with with you know forearms with arm like all legal moves but that technique of power that that LeBron has really mastered he could really get to the front of the rim against big like Jake Crowder is no slouch like he's a solidly built guy same with Jimmy he but LeBron was working his way down to the basket not always with speed which he still has but that will degrade more and more but the idea of LeBron being a championship caliber best or second best player on the team till he's 40 doesn't seem as really far-fetched because of how like all of this is like you said we almost lost it all with with AD's injury so that is kind of the eternal fundamental flaw of if either of them get hurt with anything mm-hmm. major this all comes crumbling down right so uh but if if they are able to stay relatively healthy um then yeah we've got a window man because ad is that dude on his triple threat stuff he's gonna get better at making passing reads which is really to me the next and and last like he he creates so much advantage can he take advantage of it, you know, as a passer? And he's gotten better at that, right? Like, he's much better at that than he was at the beginning of this season. The the ceiling for that, like, yeah, between those two, if you can get guys that can defend and make open shots, like, basketball's not that complicated. And so if you got those two dudes as kind of like the avatar, the earthbender and, and AD Fire Nation with his triple threat <laughs> ability, right? Yeah. Like, and they're both avatars, right? Like, just be able to do the basics of basketball, set good screens, cut, make open shots, play defense, like it, it, it's got a dynastic potential to it. We, but we got to focus on the work. Yeah, and LeBron James' career playoff low in minutes with 36 minutes per game. His next lowest was 38 with Miami back in 2014 when he had Wade and Bosh. Just insane to think about. Also insane to think about the fact that LeBron James is literally the oldest player on this team, but he's also the best. Uh, Tommy, just around the horn, 30 seconds, your closing remarks on the future of this team. I think, I mean, what Pete said about the injuries, that's obviously the big thing. We LeBron's the oldest guy on the team you met, you just mentioned. Um, if we can keep him healthy, if we can keep AD healthy, 
this team has limitless potential because a lot of the other guys, I love the team from last season. I really hope, especially because of the quick restart that we bring most of those guys back. Um, and I think we will, but I, it's comforting knowing that at the end of the day, you're left with two top five players and you just need to surround them with other help. And I think it's crazy to me that we actually have our first round pick this year and most likely we'll have it next year based on the vesting uh, or how that pick is going to vest. And so, you know, we can continue to add some youth into the mix. You're always going to have the ring chasers and LeBron's friends who are going to want to jump, you know, jump over and try to join. So I'm, I'm definitely optimistic and, and just fingers crossed that we keep everybody healthy. Alan, rah, rah, take us out. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems very sustainable, right? And, and the thing is, LeBron can become whatever kind of player he wants to be in the coming years. You know, like there's that one legendary season where Wilt Chamberlain, right, just focused on <laughs> leading the team in this statistical category and that statistical category. And like LeBron can do the exact same thing. Um, so you'll continue to see his game evolve. And by doing that, you think that he is preserving himself physically there. So then when he does have to really turn it on, like he can still do it, he'll have gas left in the tank. So, um, yeah, the team is very malleable. We have a very, very solid foundation and, uh, super exciting. Awesome. Thanks Pete so much for hopping on and spending this much time with us. It feels like we could still keep on going, but super fun. I had a blast. Yes. Pete, if you want to plug anything, just kidding. You don't got to plug anything. Everybody knows where they can find you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe someday we can find you at the Lakers facility, like literally there in person in the physical manifestation in your flesh. So we can only hope wear for mask, that in y'all. the future. Wear a mask. I know. Wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. Please I wanna vote. Go, I want to walk into work as a Laker. Please. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> you know the drill. So yeah, Pete, we'll let you go, man. Thank you. This was so much fun, guys. Thank you. This is, yeah, this is great. LFR times LLP, everybody. We are all credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.